I'm Satya Doyle Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus, known as The Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon, in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. I drove to Montana yesterday after getting a COVID test and all of the pieces involved in seeing family and getting a little break. So I'm in a different setting today and it feels good to be here. And it was also a very weird time to leave Portland, Oregon, because I feel very drawn to being part of these extraordinary protests that are happening. I don't know the numbers, but I saw an estimate of 10 to 15,000 protesters last night my heart swells. I'm watching the live feeds before bed and then watching some of the recordings in the morning and catching up and just really feeling profoundly overwhelmed with love and gratitude for my nation while also feeling terrified of my government. And we're going to explore that today in different ways with this chapter. So today's chapter is the sacrificial murder. And if you've read it already, maybe you've read it several times, uh, but we're going to read chunks of it together. It is quite the chapter. I think it's one of the most visceral chapters of the Red Book and really deeply moving and telling of what it is for us to be in our bodies and what it is for us to integrate shadow. Yeah, I'll just pause there. So because Carol's going to introduce it all and and read it, but I think we'll start. Carol, do you want to start on the topic of Jung's birthday? Sure. Here. Happy birthday, Carl. (laughs) So this is what's called the natal progressed transit chart. So here in the inner wheel is Jung's natal chart, sun conjunct Uranus, so that we know that he's an unusual human being. He sort of has the heretic and the trickster and the shocker at his heart. Opposite Saturn, authority and structures of value and meaning. That Mars and Sagittarius, he's a philosopher and has a restless visionary territory to explore. And Venus conjunct Mercury, Venus love and Mercury voice and message and an apprehension and gestalt of understanding fused in deeply sensitive visceral cancer we're going to look at this again today when we look at the chart of this of hell and the sacrificial murder of of the the astrological transits of that time this wheel if jung were alive today if he this is where everything would have progressed there's a whole branch of astrology now that looks at um, why are people who are not famous when in their lifetime become famous? 
And this is one of the things that you look at is to see how, if this life continued, would it have continued to grow and radiate out into the world? And we clearly, Jung's life's got legs. <laughs> and so this, the, the solar principle, the heart, got here long past the time when he has been very, very much 10th house, a part of, of world consciousness, has now become integrated into the life of a whole community, the 11th house. And his son and Mercury are still traveling. So if he were alive today, his, his community, here we are, his community gathered around him. We're still studying his mental journey, you know, the mercurial, the hermetic journey. And then this is, these are the uh, signatures of today. And of course, what's interesting to me is that this is very, uh, is analog to the, the transits of the day, January 14th, 1913, of the events of his journey to hell and the sacrificial murder. So we're literally um, recapitulating in the present some of his experiences they, as they were related in that time by him. So um, happy birthday, Carl. Happy birthday, Carl. Thanks for being born and bringing all this wisdom to us and helping us learn. I want to say too, it, it, there's something discordant in me that I want to speak to around honoring what we would, you know, modern terms, privileged white man in these times. I mean, I feel like there's some discord with, I have a foundation that's built on the work of a wealthy white Swiss man. But Carol and I were speaking to this before we started, and I, I really think it's going to open up in this chapter that, again, part of the reason that this is so important to me and that not only that Jung's work, I think, has self-evident value, but he was a man at the top of the world of wealth and privilege and hierarchy, and he found a way down. He integrated deeply all of the shadow material, or maybe not all, but so much shadow material and so much understanding of the privilege that he had. And this chapter really speaks to that. So we know we've spoken about there were, there are problems with Jung's work. There are problems with his legacy, but there's something profound about seeing a person who doesn't have to give anything up, descend as deeply into hell as Jung did and offer that to the world, not by turning himself into a guru. In fact, by deeply rejecting the idea of being a guru and saying, as we'll see in this chapter, the way is your way. Your life is your life. Here are some of the road maps, some of the guideposts that I can offer to you. Um, but your way is your way. So, so Carol's going to start us off with really how that shows up in this chapter by, by introducing us to this chapter, the sacrificial murder. We remember last week he's in hell and that when he is in hell, I'm just going to read a little bit because these two are segues and they're the same night. They're just broken into two different discussions. I find myself in a gloomy vault whose floor consists of damp stone slabs. I catch sight of the figure of a young maiden with wonderful red gold hair. A man of devilish appearance is lying half under her. His head is bent backward. A thin streak of blood runs down his forehead. Two similar diamonds have thrown themselves over the maiden's feet and body. So we're in the body and it's bloody and it's dark and it's deep. 
Their faces, the diamonds faces, bear an inhuman expression, living evil. Their muscles are taut and hard. Their bodies sleek like serpents. They lie motionless. The maiden holds her hand over one eye of the man lying beneath her, the most powerful of the three. Her hand firmly clasps a small silver fishing rod she's driven into the eye of the devil. He says, I break out in a profuse cold sweat. So this is the beginning of of what then takes him to this chapter, the sacrificial murder. You know, we ended last week with talking about the internalization of the I and the idea of emptiness and fullness and sacrifice. The journey in and down into the vault is now leads to the sacrificial murder. So I'm just going to read starting on page 320. This was the vision that I did not want to see, the horror that I did not want to live. A sickening feeling of nausea sneaks up on me and abominable perfidious serpents wind their way slowly and cracklingly through parched undergrowth. They hang down lazily and disgustingly lethargic from the branches, looped in dreadful knots. I am reluctant to enter this dreary and unsightly valley where the bushes stand in arid stony defiles. The valley looks so normal. Its air smells of crime, of foul, cowardly deeds. I am seized by disgust and horror. I walk hesitantly over the boulders, avoiding every dark place for fear of treading on a serpent. The sun shines weakly out of a gray and distant sky and all the leaves are shriveled. A marionette with a broken head lies before me amidst the stones. A few steps further, a small apron, and then behind the bush, the body of a small girl, covered with terrible wounds, smeared with blood. One foot is clad with a stocking and shoe. The other is naked and gorily crushed. The head, where's the head? The head is a mash of blood with hair and whitish pieces of bone surrounded by stones smeared with brain and blood. My gaze is captivated by this awful sight. A shrouded figure like that of a woman is standing calmly next to the child. Her face is covered by an impenetrable veil. She asks me, what then do you say? Jung says, what should I say? This is beyond words. Do you understand this? I refuse to understand such things. I can't speak about them without becoming enraged. She says, why become enraged? You might as well rage every day of your life, for these and similar things occur every day. Jung says, but most of the time we don't see them. She says, so knowing that they happen is not enough to enrage you? He says, if I merely have knowledge of something, it's easier and simpler. The horror is less real if all I have is knowledge. Step nearer and you will see that the body of the child has been cut open. Take out the liver. I will not touch this corpse, Jung says. If someone witnessed this, they would think that I'm the murderer. She says, you are cowardly. Take out the liver. He says, why should I do this? This is absurd. I want you to remove the liver. You must do it. Who are you to give me such an order? 
I am the soul of this child. You must do this for my sake. I don't understand, but I'll believe you and do this horrible and absurd deed. I reach into the child's visceral cavity. It is still warm. The liver is still firmly attached. I take my knife and cut it free of the ligaments. Then I take it out and hold it with bloody hands toward the figure. She says, I thank you. What should I do? She says, you know what the liver means, and you ought to perform the healing act with it. What is to be done? Take a piece of the liver in place of the whole and eat it. What are you demanding? This is absolute madness. This is desecration, necrophilia. You make me a guilty party to this most hideous of all crimes. She says, you have devised the most horrible torment for the murderer which could atone for this act. There is only one atonement. Abase yourself and eat. I cannot, Jung says, I refuse. I cannot participate in this horrible guilt. She says, you share in this guilt. He says, I share in this guilt? You are a man, and a man has committed this deed. Yes, I am a man. I curse whoever did this for being a man, and I curse myself for being a man. So take part in his act. Abase yourself and eat. I need atonement. So shall it be for your sake, as you are the soul of this child. I don't know how many times I've read this section, but it's still, it's so visceral and so emotionally profound. It really moves me very deeply. We're going to, I think, just start, we'll work through this one section a little bit because there are so many components of this one section. Let's start, Carol, with just the rage and the liver and this section about why become enraged. I mean, we're talking, Jung is really getting an education from his inner life, from the feminine soul here, saying to him, you are part of the guilt on the planet. And if there is anything that we are all getting a lesson in right now, over and over and over again, that Black Lives Matter is helping us to remember as a nation and as a world, and so many different movements, that we are all part of a system and a culture with our skin, with our actions, with our laws, all the way up and down the ladder that make us party to guilt and suffering. And part of what moves me about this is that it has to do with, for me, I mean, a bit of this rage. And I, I just exploring this a little bit, understand that liver in the Chinese medical system is, is part of the space of anger. And Carol, I wonder if you can just speak to some of that and, and your own understanding of the liver in the Chinese medical system. So I'm not a doc. I'm an astrologer, but I have a, a more than passing interest in how the language of astrology and the language of classical medical understanding of the, of the seasonal rounds as the metabolism of the cosmic body and that we are the microcosm of that macrocosmic metabolism. And in that sense, the idea of the, of the cosmic body and the human body, different seasons are different organ systems, that every organ in the body, whether it's the, the macro or the micro, has a particular function in order for the seamless operation of the whole, every part, including death. So, 
in that system, the liver is the organizing, strategizing principle that operates deep in the body. The deepest part of the body from that philosophy is the gallbladder, which deep, deep, deep in the middle of the night, which cosmically is winter, is preparing the body, preparing bile salts and teeing you up. So when you're sound asleep, when you're in deep winter, already there is preparation that is occurring. And then as the light, as the yang energy slowly starts to return, as there's more sun and there's more light and there's more heat, then the cosmic body begins to organize itself around its preparation. So the liver is, is the, that organ that is associated with that degree of organization to prepare, to take all the preparation to grow forward. So it's associated with the energy, with the wood element, with the idea of growth, but it's also associated with the idea of organization and containment. And in that system of thinking, the liver governs the skin. So it's this idea of how do you organize yourself it's not martial. It's not like Mars and the preparation of territory and mastery. It's more this comprehensive idea of how will you hold all of this together so that it is able to grow forward and maintain itself at the same time. Not unchecked growth, not, not growth that cannot be managed, like, uh, not like Cancerian growth, but growth in the sense of how do you contain something that wants to move and, and create. So that idea of the boundary or the periphery is that it is a guardian function that you want for your skin to breathe. You want for your skin to be able to breathe and breathe in what it is that's beneficial and nutritional for you. And that you want to be able for the skin to let things out that need to go out. But you also want the skin to keep things out that shouldn't come in and to let things out that shouldn't stay in. So that whole idea of the liver function, the taiyang, is this perimeter guardian function. So it's one way I think about the liver. And, and you know, Jung wouldn't have been privy to this information. The other thought that I have about the liver, of course, is Prometheus. And Jung would have been, it would have been a part of Jung's scholarly and mythological gestalt. And in that story, Prometheus is against the express direction of Zeus, the bringer of fire to humanity. And when Zeus wakes up and sees that humans have fire and they're cooking and that they have light and are beginning to have knowledge, he knows he's been expressly disobeyed and he knows who did it because he knows who he forbade. So he chains Prometheus to a rock where an eagle comes and eats his liver every night. And the eagle is Zeus's animal. And during the day, the liver grows back. So it's an expression of the, this idea that, in light, that li the liver is the seed of enlightenment, that Zeus punished Prometheus with the liver. It wasn't some other, it wasn't his eyes, it wasn't his stomach, it wasn't his heart. It was the seed of enlightenment, of fire and passion and heat and light, and understanding and consciousness. And later in, in Prometheus's life, 
because Chiron is mortally wounded and, and it will suffer from it forever, there is a point at which Chiron, the wounded healer, tries to trade places with Prometheus to relieve him of his suffering. But in the end, they are not able to do that. So this idea of, of why it's the liver that, that this child that, that, has, that Jung shares in the, mur the murderer, the sacrifice of the liver and has to eat it, has to reconnect through his act not to atone for it, to be, but to become a part of it and to make it a part of any future enlightenment if he's going to have a prayer of moving forward with clarity and understanding from this deep visceral experience, he has to eat it. And of course, this prefigures transubstantiation. And, and you know, I've been, I, I, when I read this chapter and reread this chapter, I went back to Wendy Doniger O'Flaherty's uh, incredible chapters on the Hindus on how the Brahmas had to grow through the sacrifice of animals and humans to come to ahimsa, to come to the principle of compassion for suffering and nonviolence. So this 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 particular chapter and this particular act has pre is prefigured in so many different cultures about how we come to terms in the body with sacrifice and of not only getting something, but giving something up. Thank you, Carol. I feel like I'm reminded again, we were speaking before we all joined you. Um, there are so many pieces in this chapter. It could be 10 salons by itself. So just in the liver, there's symbols of integrating rage. There's symbols of integrating or uh, appreciating the toxicity and the ability to detox through our skin. Immediately, I'm thinking again about projection and owning the shadow and this work that Jung is doing, but this quality of our skin, again, both politically and socially, what our whole world is being drawn back to remember is, is the power that our skin can hold in society. Um, and that, that relationship to the inner body and that inner organ that Jung is integrating here. But also this quality of enlightenment and knowledge, that parallel to the Garden of Good and Evil story, right? There's this moment of Jung here, at this moment in his journey, he encounters this horrifying image. And you can feel his horror. And that is what's so beautiful about this book in, in, in contrast to most of Jung's writing for me, is you can feel his, his compassion and his grief and his soul and his beingness in a way you often can't feel it in his other writing. And he's horrified. He, this is a moment where he's coming upon a little girl who has been murdered and her head has been smashed and it, it disgusts him, right? And here then her soul, he's interacting in this vision with her soul. And she says, you need to put your hands in the body cavity of this child you need to remember that you have blood on your hands, that you are a party to this guilt. You are part of this murder of this, of this being, of this soul. And symbolically, I think we could explore that in a hundred different ways. Yeah. But I also don't know that we need to dig that deeply because you can feel it again in your skin, right? What Jung is expressing here in this story and what, his, what the soul of this child is asking him to feel. And this is before, and you, you know, remembering too, Jung's a trained physician, right? So part of that, the anatomy and, and some of that comes up in this, but 
this is all before he then eats it. And that's what I think we'll go to next. Carol, do you want, you want me to read yeah. that? You want to read that piece? Yeah, you read the next piece. I kneel down on the stone, cut off a piece of the liver and put it in my mouth. My gorge rises, tears burst from my eyes, cold sweat covers my brow, a dull, sweet taste of blood. I swallow with desperate efforts. It is impossible. Once again and once again, I almost faint. It is done. The horror has been accomplished. The soul says, I thank you. She throws her veil back, a beautiful maiden with ginger hair. She says, do you recognize me? Jung says, how strangely familiar you are. Who are you? I am your soul. So I, I would like at this point, not to take away from the, the, this visceral part of it, but I want to look at the astrology of this moment for Jung. In the horoscope model, this balancing act between what we call the sixth house and the twelfth house if, if we think of the horoscope as a picture of our arrival and entry and adaptation to geography and season, and that a part of the map of our arrival and adaptation is here in the Newtonian world of gravity and time, but that this is also a picture of a portal to timelessness and the infinite from the Newtonian world to the quantum world. And Jung's Red Book journey is pulling and balancing this world of body and viscera with the spirit of the depths and with the soul. So in his natal chart, he has the planet Venus, the, the symbol of love and relationship we can limit it to the feminine, but it isn't just the feminine. It's our, our capacity to feel and have compassion for and be related to other. And Mercury, who was Hermes before he was Mercury, and who is the god of the path, that Mercury knows itself when it's moving and is a part of everything where it's moving that it isn't just language and speech and being able to understand each other. It is moving in and with. It's why it's uh, Mercury's Hermes, the hermetic trickster. And of all of the, all the divinities of our Western mythologies, Mercury is the only God that can go into the underworld and back unchanged. Everyone else who goes into Hades world either never comes back or comes back transformed. And yeah, someone was arguing with me the other day, well, Hercules went in and came back unchanged and Hercules did not come back unchanged. But the point is that here in Jung's nature, he is exploring being on the path with the feminine in his body, sixth house. On the night of this hell and the sacrificial murder, Mercury and Venus are traveling together exactly opposite his natal embodiment. So here we have the same archetypal energies, the same gods, the same 
forces from the depths in his depths informing him in his viscera literally cancer the stomach and the heart so i'm very struck by the literalness of the moment for him of having to internalize through eating the cancerian nature the stomach something that's ritual and um transpersonal not just personal coming from the spirit of the depths there are other things that could be said about this but i'm as we go through the red book and as i continue to follow the environment in which jung is having these experiences he's allowing himself not only for the times to direct him and to direct his own nature but he has the the doorway to the spirit of the depths is opened and it's affecting him literally and viscerally thank you that is that's the whole thing right it's affecting him literally and viscerally and I always say, I mean, I, I, I'll make statements like the core of Jung's work for me. I know I say that a lot and I, they're always different statements, I think, because there's so many cores to his work. But this fundamental critical component that this is about living life. It's not about separating ourselves from life or, or intellectualizing ourselves from life or trying to stay in some quiet corner where we're not part of existence, you know he is really emphasizing we are all part of existence. And that footnote, footnote 149, that finishes right where I ended, um, he speaks to this fact that he says nothing, he's quoting someone here, nothing human is alien to me. Nothing human is alien to me. That crux is so valuable, Mm -hmm. right? That he is emphasizing again here's a man who is at the top of society on the planet and he's deeply recognizing i am related to all the guilt of existence i am related to all of the suffering of existence i am not separate from it no in quotes disgusting creature or disgusting evil or 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 damage that has been done to any creature on this planet is something that i am separate from or not capable of doing And so it drops us all right into the center of society and the world and and in a very deeply visceral way. Again, this is not philosophy, right? It's hard for me to even read that section I read because tears come to my eyes, right? I mean, you can feel it. It's so deeply felt. And it changes the world. It changed, you know, as he goes on to say, the God needs all this for his genesis. If you remember that, if you remember meeting Isdubar, the journey of, of killing Isdubar with science, of keeping Isdubar alive, of bringing his god to an egg, his terror at giving birth to the god, his I am the sun, mm-hmm. I am the god, and then right on the heels of it, oh, Mm-hmm. Guilt. Is this shame. what it means? Is this what it means? Is this what God's world is about? Is this what this God's world is about? So, Carol, let's, let's read the whole rest of this. I think right. we need to read the whole thing. Okay, I, let, let me just read this foot, footnote 150 because we need, there's the footnotes in this entire section are profound as well. And, um, but every line is profound in this section. I'm just going to read this footnote here. So this is from the draft, which again is something that the editors chose to weave in pieces of and leave out pieces of. And some of the pieces are in this footnote. So this 
This was in a different draft of the Red Book that Jung had created. He wrote, this experience accomplished what I needed. It occurred in the most abominable manner. The evil that I wanted performed, the infamous deed, seemingly without me and yet with me, since I learned that I am party to all the horror of human nature. I destroyed the divine child, the image of my God's formation, through the most dreadful crime which human nature is capable of. It takes this atrocity to destroy the image of God that drinks all my life force so that I could reclaim my life. So at the bottom of 322, the sacrifice has been accomplished. The divine child, the image of the God's formation is slain and I have eaten from the sacrificial flesh. So you, you can feel not only the long lineage of Christian iconography and transubstantiation, but, but that's why I went back to the Hindus and, uh, and certainly the idea of sacrifice. Every human culture has had to come to terms with this in its way. The child that is the image of the God's formation not only bore my human craving, but also enclosed all the primordial and elemental powers that the sons of the sun possess as an inalienable inheritance. The God needs all this for his genesis. But when he has been created and hastens away into unending space, we need the gold of the sun. We must regenerate ourselves. But as the creation of a God is a creative act of highest love, the restoration of our human life signifies an act of the below. This is a great and dark mystery. Man cannot accomplish this act solely by himself, but is assisted by evil, which does it instead of man. But man must recognize his complicity in the act of evil. He must bear witness to this recognition by eating from the bloody sacrificial flesh. Through this act, he testifies that he is a man, that he recognizes good as well as evil, and that he destroys the image of the God's formation through withdrawing his life force, with which he also dissociates himself from the God this occurs for the salvation of the soul, which is the true mother of the divine child. When it bore and gave birth to the God, my soul was of human nature throughout. It possessed the primordial power since time immemorial, but only in a dormant condition. That to me is the sixth house unanimated and unradiated by the 12th house in the horoscope. A dormant condition, potential latent but not potent. They flowed into forming the God without my help, but through the sacrificial murder, I redeemed the primordial powers and added them to my soul. Since they became part of a living pattern, they are no longer dormant, but awake and active and irradiate my soul with their divine working. Through this, it receives a divine attribute. Hence, the eating of the sacrificial flesh aids its healing, that is, the souls. The ancients have also indicated this to us in that they taught us to drink the blood and eat the flesh of the Savior. The ancients believed that this brought healing to the soul. 
There are not many truths. There are only a few. Their meaning is too deep to grasp other than symbols. And I'll turn this over to you at this point. You know, this is going somewhere, but for me, one of the amazing things that is happening to Jung as he is living now in a different world, in a different body and a different world, and now he's going to create a new language. The visual and symbolic speech that begins to come as a result of this act is really profound. Why don't we start there then? We'll pause there and go to the images. So there are a series of images where Jung is beginning to, as his world begins to speak to him, as his new heart, as his new boundaries, as his new deity begin to speak to him, his body's talking to him, and there's world-making that's beginning to happen here. So he, in, in, if those of you who have the Red Book, there is the beginning of this series of, of primordial images that get increasingly complex. But this is the first one out of, from, from images uh, 81 to 97, there is a series and a sequence of images in which you can see here that he is beginning to develop a whole language. And that on page, when he, by the time he gets to image 94, you can see here that there is this arc of language. And he has um, a very long discussion about it in which he says, um, he talks about an, an image that he has later where the father of Philemon comes and he begins to develop these runes. He says, see the two with different feet, one earth foot and one sun foot, which reach toward the upper cone and have the sun inside, but I have made one crooked line toward the other sun. Therefore, one must reach downward. Meanwhile, the upper sun comes out of the cone and the cone gazes after it, dejected about where it is going. One has to retrieve it with a hook and would like to place it in the small prison. Then the three have to stand together, unite and twirl up at the top, curled. With this, they manage to free the sun from its prison again. Now you make a thick bottom and a roof where the sun sits safe at the top. But inside the house, the other sun has risen also. Therefore, you too are coiled up at the top and have made a roof over the prison again at the bottom so that the upper sun cannot enter. The two suns always want to be together. I said so, didn't I? The two cones, each has a sun. You want to let them come together because then you think that thus you could be one. You have now drawn up both sons and brought them to one another and now slope to the other side. That is important. But then there are simply two sons at the bottom. So therefore you have to go to the lower cone. So he goes on in this vein at some length where now a new language is being born. Not just a new symbol system, 
but a whole new language about how his inner nature is symbolizing itself to him and that it speaks Mercury and it's in his body, Venus in the sixth house, but that it's coming from the depths. So let me stop here because where all of this is going is to this last chapter in this, this last paragraph in this chapter. But I am so inexpressibly moved by, if you think about all the great world making, I, I often say to some of my, my more scientific and sort of more rigorously metaphysical clients, you need to read science fiction. <laughs> and they say, well, that's not a real world. I like to read things that are based in the real world. And I think about world making, and this is what's happening here, a whole world, not the preferred world or the white culture world or the skin culture world or the, the institutional world, but a whole world making itself known and writing a new language. And um, I'm a very big fan of J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. And the worlds that they made in their, in their young days, um, I think about C.S. Lewis's novel, Until We Have Faces, and Tolkien's long development of a complete elvish language for the creation of Lord of the Rings. And I put this in the same category of arriving through self-sacrifice and loss and depth at a different kind of world and a different kind of language that comes out of it. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Carol. And, and also to throw in Octavia Butler and oh. Ursula B. Le Guin, yeah. right? I mean, you know, I was raised by a, a dad who's, who's definitely a sci-fi junkie. And, you know, I was a Star Trek nerd growing up and soaked all of it up and, and learned some Klingon at one point, which I was thrilled by. Um, but, but, you know, Octavia Butler as a, um, you know, and Ursula K. Le Guin for me, female world creators, just again, the difference of, of what comes through us and the, for me and both of their writing, the way gender is completely altered. And I've not experienced that as much in, in the writing of men, but I don't want to speak too broadly here. I've not read, you know, necessarily that much sci-fi. What do you think, Carol? Just as I say that. Well, if, if you want to read some dynamite world-making, Ronald Tiptree, I forget the name of the woman who took the, the, that name because she couldn't get published. But, but her visions and her worlds of, and her understanding of the patriarchy and relationship to women and, and the future and then an imagined future, if things keep going the way they're going, will, you know, it won't just make the hair stand up on your head. It'll make you take to the streets. Right. And that's it, is that they're all, I mean, for me, Octavia Butler and Ursula K. Le Guin are all speaking about post-apocalyptic universes, really. But it gives us a sense of maybe what are we doing in this age of Aquarius? What are, what, what's coming, right? So let's come to the Red Book in that respect, because yeah. I think we'll read everything, but I want to really focus on the last paragraph. So I'll just go ahead and read, and then we'll open up the last paragraph before Q&A, because it really is... It's so relatable for our lived experience of deferring to the body more and more and more for where the wisdom is. And, and as young as eating the liver and eating 
this seat of, of, as Carol puts it, the liver is what is organizing the system and containing the system by, by managing the skin, right? So we're talking about Jung digesting embodiment and the embodiment of the feminine here. So we'll come to this at the very end. I'll start where we left off on 324. A God who is no stronger than man, what is he? You still should taste holy dread. How would you be worthy of enjoying the wine and the bread if you have not touched the black bottom of human nature? Hence, you are lukewarm and pale shadows, proud of your shallow coastlines and broad country roads. But the floodgates will be opened. There are inexorable things from which only God can save you. The primordial force is the radiance of the sun, which the sons of the sun have carried in themselves for eons and passed on to their children. But if the soul dips into radiance, she becomes as remorseless as the God himself, since the life of the divine child, which you have eaten, will feel like glowing coals in you. It will burn inside you like a terrible, inextinguishable fire. But despite all the torment, you cannot let it be, since it will not let you be. From this, you will understand that your God is alive and that your soul has begun wandering on remorseless paths. You feel that the fire of the sun has erupted in you. Something new has been added to you, a holy affliction. Sometimes you no longer recognize yourself. You want to overcome it, but it overcomes you. You want to set limits, but it compels you to keep going. You want to elude it, but it comes with you. You want to employ it, but you are its tool. You want to think about it, but your thoughts obey it. Finally, the fear of the inescapable seizes you, for it comes after you slowly and invincibly. There is no escape. So it is that you come to know what a real God is. Now you'll think up clever truisms, preventative measures, secret escape routes, excuses, potions of capable of inducing forgetfulness, but it's all useless. The fire burns right through you. That which guides you forces you onto the way. But the way is my own self, my own life founded upon myself. The God wants my life. He wants me to go with him, to sit at the table with me, to work with me. Above all, he wants to be ever present. But I'm ashamed of my God. I don't want to be divine, but reasonable. The divine appears to me as irrational craziness. I hate it in an, as an absurd disturbance of my meaningful human activity. It seems an unbecoming sickness which has stolen into the regular course of my life. Yes, I even find the divine superfluous. Oof, Jung. Yeah, I want to show the picture of, of, okay. of what, he, what he put over the doorway of his house. And Carrie F. Baines, I just want to say, wrote in a letter, um, you know, this is Jung writing with fire and blood. And it just, this is such a section to, that speaks to that. Um, okay, Carol, after you show this, I want to All right, dive on. into this a bit. Um, and, and the client work, the way this shows up for me in my lived experience and the way this shows up, working with other people who are really working to trust the God in themselves. And and for me, when Jung uses God as a masculine 
it's true for me in the feminine sense here. And so just allowing everyone to play with that gender stuff in their own ways, but go for it, Carol, show us, tell us what you're showing us here. This is the house that Jung built for himself in Kuznak. This is where all of these active imaginations are occurring. And this, he had carved over the doorway. It says over, it says in Latin, Vocatus atque non vocatus Deus aderit, which is from Erasmus. It says, yes, the God will be on the spot. The God will be present, called or not, the God will be present. Mm-hmm. And I think about the, the ritual welcome of a doorway or an altar or um, a process that, that here it is, it's over, over his entryway. Mm-hmm. That um, to remind himself, since, he's, since it, it's so difficult, stolen into the regular course of my life, I even find the divine superfluous, but come in. Mm-hmm. Mm. And this little section always reminds me of the princess and the frog story, yeah. where she, whether she likes it or not, the frog you know, we, there's so much to open up here in terms of the contract that she makes when the frog brings her golden ball, the symbol of the golden ball up back from the well where she dropped it, right? So many images here. But she tells the frog, yes, yes, just get the ball and you can hop along with me, whatever, whatever, fine, right? And so the frog gets the ball and then the frog says, at that point, well, I'm going to eat at your table and I'm going to sleep in your bed and I'm going to sit beside you. And as much as she wants to say no, her father, the king, another image, says, if you made the promise, you have to let him be with you. So there's this, again, this kind of bridging of opposites. It's not just the masculine and the feminine there. It's also the human and the animal. Yeah. And, and, and this is very much where Jung is going in this chapter, is the integration of the animal, which opens yeah. up more and more as we progress in these chapters. It's the integration of the animal. It's the integration of the embodiment and the deference to the embodiment. And also you can feel the deference of the left brain back to the right brain. As we've spoken about neurologically, it's taking what should be the, the you know, in Ian McGilchrist's language, the emissary and letting the emissary go back to being the emissary and the master going back to being the master. But it's, and he says this here, Jung says this in one of these last paragraphs on 324, uh, you want to set limits, but it compels you to keep going. You want to elude it, but it comes to you. You want to employ it, but you are its tool. You want to think about it, but your thoughts obey it. And so we're coming back to a complete shift of the Western mindset. And for me, what is the detox of white supremacist patriarchal consciousness? If we continue to detox from this consciousness that tells us that we, you know, pointing to the forehead, this idea that some, this, this general or militant quality of our consciousness that we were all raised with that says, this is my schedule, this is my time, this is my order, this is my routine, these are the teachers who told me to do this, this, and this, so I will do those things. Instead of this deep place of potential revelation where we can have walked through our fires and eaten our guilt and shame and process and found our body and loved our bodies again. Um, I'm thinking of Resma Melikum's work, My Grandmother's Hands, and his profound work 
such profound work to explore this person's uh, research. And, and fundamentally, for all of us, what it means to come back into our bodies and claim our bodies and the maturity of process when we do that, when we own what our skin does in the world and our traumas, but we come back to life. Again, I think of what James Baldwin spoke to, that if white people don't learn to come back to life and love their lives, also racism doesn't change. It's not just about, it's not just about suffering guilt, right? Uh, which I think is really the common narrative right now. And I struggle with that a bit because I don't think this is just about shame and guilt. It's about white people and everyone on this planet, however you racially identify, finding joy and love again and detoxing from the the kind of militant cult leader general and that's inside of most of us that tells us this is right and this is wrong. Instead of waking up in the morning and going, huh, what is today like? What do I need right now? And letting our bodies uh, move us in that way and our souls move us. And so this paragraph, the end, you know, I don't want to be divine, but reasonable. The divine appears to me as irrational craziness. I don't want this frog hopping beside me. I don't want my body to tell me what it needs today. It's getting in my way. It's bothering me, right? He says, I hate it as an absurd disturbance of my meaningful, my meaningful human activity. I have a plan of what I want to be doing. So he's really shifting gears here. And this whole process of eating human flesh, eating the flesh of this girl child, uh, and, and needing to get into this embodied, disgusting space helps him to come back into his body and start reclaiming something. And that opens us up to magic. We start to get into Jung's understanding of magic and this, rev, this kind of divine channeling space that he enters, which, Carol, your exploration of the ruins is so, so valuable there. Well, to your point about, about right-left hem- hemisphere and, and about embodiment, Coming back to the animal body is the prelude to we. That's where, that's, it's in the cerebellum. It's in the animal brain where we're a part of something that's bigger than we are and we can move with not only my, my schedule, my time, my rules, my way of thinking, but where, where is everybody? Are we together? Can we, can we gather with each other? Mm-hmm. And that, that, that idea of returning a relationship from separateness to we-ness from right. the neocortical to the, to the animal, getting back into balance with it. Right. And the know. democracy of our own individual systems versus the, Impo- the what's imposed. I'm sorry that we're getting, we're, we're, I'm assuming that you're still there and you're able to hear everybody. My, the, the little electrons in Montana must behave differently than they do everywhere else. I'm going to come out. Oh, can you you see my back? Okay. There you are. Yeah. Thank you all. It is a little different here. I I sort of wondered if it would be. Um, But let's do, shall we we check in with Anne and then go to the Yes. Anne, are you there? You want to share some of your thoughts that you had on this chapter? Well, I'll just do two, couple of very simple things. Carol, if I'm not mistaken, in the Chinese um, five element theory, another aspect of the liver is that that's where one of the two souls resides, the hun, which is the one that ascends death. But the other interesting thing about it in terms of Jung is that that's where, in Chinese thinking, our dreams are stored during the day, which I've always thought was a wonderful. So when we're, like right now, where all our dreams are stored, 
is in our liver. So in some way, that's also what he's partaking of. Um, yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to add that to the, the discussion of the liver. The only other thing was that Satya asked me an interesting question about the word, um, you are a man and a man has committed this deed. Yes, I am a man. The word in German is mensch, which I'm sure one knows. He's a mensch, a good guy. But in German, it has a much more, it means human, exactly in the sense of nothing human is alien to me. We don't have a very good word for that. And so we usually will translate it as man, as if man were a universal word for human. And I yeah. think it's important to understand that what, what Jung is looking at here is not so strictly, I am a man as I am a human being. I mean, in some places it's the other, but I think here what he's getting at with the word demensch is this, this belongs to me as a human being. That's fascinating to me, Anne, that that's connected with the Yiddish mensch. Yeah. Uh, uh, to be a good a good guy a great guy you know yeah. however I translate that or a good woman I mean I, I don't think it's gendered in my experience with the Yiddish of mensch it's just to be a good person but interesting that that quality of being a good person is connected to that in the German it's also always well, interesting well, that they couldn't find a word to translate it with so they decided they better just keep the original word which is my feeling about it we need to come up with one maybe James Joyce says mm -hmm. I'll look yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting to me that it's the Western languages that gender nouns. And my, my, like mm. my friends from Vietnam, one of the challenges of speaking English is they don't have the same idea about gender and how gender radiates the nouns of their language. You yeah. know, and so we're, 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 at the, we're at the end of a long history here of, of, a, of a certain way of thinking. Thanks for the reminder about the Hoon spirits. I did an act of imagination once in which I met all of my Hoon spirits as a jazz ensemble. You know, they're just down there <laughs> cooking, yeah. cooking away. Yeah. And I love it that the dreams are stored there during the day. It's a wonderful, yeah. you know, we'd have them somewhere up in our head, but no, they have yeah. them down probably where they belong. Yeah. Thanks, Anne. Yeah. Um, everyone, let's see, we're going to do what we do, right? Which is uh, invite all of you to join in and ask questions uh, and offer some thoughts. And we'll do this just for a bit with all you. Hi, Jane. I've been thinking a lot about, you know, having lived in Portland and now observing what's going on there from far away while my son is still there, who is very involved with friends who are protesters. And his girlfriend is very involved with feeding the protesters. And I keep thinking about the fact, I do recall, and correct me if I'm wrong, that Portland is Aquarian. And I'm thinking about here it's become the epicenter of this revolution. It's the beginning. It's attracting the world's attention to make this transformation from the masculine to the feminine. I mean, Portland's always been a group mind from what I, could, what I felt living there. So I wanted to get your thoughts on, on that, um, you know, as to what's going on there 
and how, you know, once again, um, freedom of speech and fighting against the militia and the white supremacist. And, you know, it's very, I'm very proud of my Portland friends. Thank you. I'll answer if this is an astrological uh, question, Jane. It's such an interesting question and I hadn't really thought about it, but off the top of my head. Oregon is an Aquarian state. Our birthday is February 14th, 1859. And I could think that it is safe to say that Oregon is a pioneering place. And, and, you know, we could go on at some length about that. Portland itself is an Aries city. It was, um, it has six planets in Aries at the midheaven. You know, astrologers for a very long time have the founding information of cities and countries, you know, looking at treaties, looking at elections, looking at coronations all all over the world. And so the founding of a city, the charter of a city is when the, the, the founders agree and sign on the dotted line. And so I have a book that's got the, the horoscopes of all of the cities in the United States. And what's interesting about these times, to your point, Jane, of an Aquarian, a larger Aquarian environment in which fire is happening, that right now there are very potent energies in the springtime move, grow, expand, burn, Aries, sign, Aries, coming up against and meeting rigid containing Jupiter and Capricorn, uh, the forces, including Jupiter connection with Pluto, the dark underworld, in an attempt to try and put a skin on or to contain all this fire. And there, there are going to be this is not going away anytime soon. We're going to be looking at this through the end of this year at this pitch and that there are going to be three more very powerful encounters of the, the martial energy of I, my way, my growth, my forward thrust against containment and the rigidity of the past. So, it's not surprising to me that it's Portland. And, um, and, and I think about how each of us has had to find a way to come to terms with this. For me, it has been uh, some pretty stern uh, letters to uh, several select senators and Congress people and contributions to campaigns that followed, which, which is... Um, Carol, are now up on the Salome Action website. Your letters are there. And so that's a piece, too. If people do want to be joining in some of this, go to Salome Institute backslash action. And we'll try to just be updating some things, some ways to specifically engage, trying to integrate all of this material. Uh, It is remarkable, I think, for all of us that Portland has become the epicenter in this. Um, And I love, we might need to do more on exploring the astrology of that. That's pretty... No, Jane, it's a great question. And and now, I mean, this is just truly off the top of my head. I'll go back and do a little more homework. Thank you. Maybe we can bring that in next time. For Thank sure. you so much. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thanks, Jane, for your well, question. It, it, to me, it felt like it related to everything you've been talking about. Yeah. Today. Well, when you look at, at the transits to Jung's chart 
in um, in this in these particular episodes of the Red Book, they're very similar to the, what we're. And we've said this before. It's very similar to what we're experiencing now. So, well, I, one last thing. I don't know if you're aware, but I got a video uh, last night of people walk marching. Sorry, I get emotional. People marching up Fifth Avenue, saying we are with Portland. Mm. And and they went all the way from Union Square to Trump Tower. Beautiful. And the whole time they had a whole rhythm. It was fantastic. But thank you yeah. so much. I want to just, I remember when the Iraq war started and the amount of guilt and grief that I felt. I mean, I'm, uh, whew, it's, it was so profound. I think many of us felt how profound that guilt and grief was that we, our tax dollars, are sending military contractors, okay, which is now what's happening in Portland, largely. I mean, I don't have the fact checking on this, but it seems that a lot of the people who are in Portland are not even government employees. They are contracted mercenaries, okay? But I remember the feeling of hopelessness and rage and grief that I felt for years, right? I mean, it's still happening, years, that my tax dollars were going to murder brown people, I mean, this was all projection on people that America in its white privilege and patriarchy could project upon. We were sending hired contractors to go kill people without constitutional respect for the American constitution, let alone the laws of the ground in Iraq and all throughout the Middle East. And obviously then we destabilized the entire Middle East, all based on false pretenses, which most of us knew at the time. But there's something profound to me about the fact that it is now we are eating our own shit here. Yeah. They, we are now, those mercenaries, this entire modern military industrial complex that was built for Dick Cheney and Halliburton and the whole damn thing, it's now in our streets. It's in the liberal streets who were often marching against the Iraq war to begin with, right? So it's a little awkward here, but we are all now able to say, and this is part of what feels good to me about this moment, ironically, is I get to have more power now to fight back against the mercenaries who I never wanted to be killing innocent people to begin with, or locking up innocent people in Guantanamo Bay, or people who are fighting for their own national sovereignty, which is now what we are doing. So it's profound to me uh, that we, in the same way that Jung is eating the liver of this child and acknowledging guilt, there's some way in this moment that we are all deeply integrating what our nation has been doing globally yeah. for forever, right? Locally, in, on our soil to black and brown skinned people and immigrants and on and on. But now also there's this military industrial complex just got blown back on us, much like the leaf blowers, which is such a symbol, but it's profound. This, this sort of shifting projective winds right? We're throwing something at you, we're sending it back at you. And how we're all needing to integrate in this moment, all of this shadow material. So it's very literal. Um, and Jane, I mean, again, these are all things we've been meditating on, I've been thinking about. So appreciate you kind of bringing us back to this moment here. Okay. Hi, Pamela. Are you ready? I was just thinking about the liver and the liver system in Chinese medicine and medical Qigong. In Chinese medicine thinking, the gut is responsible for so much health in the body. And the liver, of course, is the wood element. So in, in um, 
the five element system, we have acquired emotions that we come in with, that we are just born with as humans. And then each organ stores the, these emotions. And then we develop emotions based on our experiences in this life. And those are called the acquired emotions. So the acquired emotions of the liver are anger, rage, jealousy, um, frustration, and depression. And uh, the congenital emotions, which would be the opposites, are compassion and kindness, love, patience and unselfishness. So when we are working with a patient, we'll, one of the things we look at is the emotional health and what's going on um, with the person. And we'll look at the liver if any of these emotions are present, especially the negative emotions. And one of the things that's often prescribed will be a dietary remedy if the liver comes into unbalance. And so one of the things that's recommended is to eat liver. If you're having a problem with your liver, if you're having anger, depression, other emotions, you would eat liver, you would eat chicken liver. If you're having a problem with your heart, you would eat heart, either from a cow or from a chicken, or you would eat tongue because the sense organ of the heart is the tongue. Um, wow. The sense organ of the liver is the eyes. So if there's a problem with the eyes, what you're seeing, red eyes or anything, you're going to look at the liver. Um, so I just wanted to contribute that. And again, it's, it's eating. It's like the hair of the dog that harms you. You take that in and it becomes the transformative uh, element. And it's the same thing with if you're having a problem with the liver, you eat liver. Amazing. Could I, could I ask you a question, Pam? In terms of nutrition, of remedial nutrition for emotional imbalance, not with the idea of balance as immutable and static, but dynamic, mm -hmm. what do you do for someone who cannot get mad on their own behalf? What, what, what is, what it, I'm assuming that it, it, you know, if you think about both the physiology and the pathology of, of function, mm -hmm. of elemental function and org, of, of elemental function expressed dynamically through the organs when you encounter someone who is not able for example to defend themselves or who or a culture that is not able to let a, a group express its rage or its its position is is does does your teaching also encompass that idea yeah so i would i would have them nourish the liver with um, eating green vegetables, especially uh, things that are, that are the wood element. So like asparagus, which grows straight up like a tree and spinach and leafy greens. And then the um, flavor of the liver is the sour element. So I would have the person drink lemon water and lime water and eat sauerkraut and other fermented things. So I would start working on it with a physiological response. I would prescribe some Qigong movements that would help doing, would start doing energetic clearing um, in that way. I would look at dreams and what's coming up there. We might do some visualizations about what other responses you could have to a certain situation. So I'd start working at it like that. It's a long, slow process. Yeah. 
I, I just think not only personally, but in the collective of what we're seeing now in the collective of the, how to contain things, not in the sense of, of kill them or squelch them, but how do you make the liver function live and breathe and animate its way that's healthy, mm-hmm. healthy expressions of rage, for example, you know, right. justifiable expressions of rage. And just thinking about it culturally, I remember the last time I was in China, one of our teachers said, the reason you Americans get sick is because you won't eat bitter. Mm. And that really, really, that really stuck with me, you know, that I then really, it's very much kind of what I think that where, where Jung is, is you have to eat this. Right, you have to integrate things, you have to look at your dreams and, um, and work with those difficult elements. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. It, it just, again, coming back for me, Pamela, that's so extraordinary. There's so much food for thought there. But of white America in particular, learning to be comfortable with rage. But culturally, different races, different cultures are more comfortable with rage. Yeah. And I mean, I know growing up with a lot of Jewish blood, I had to realize that I was Jewish and had Hispanic and Jewish blood in certain white communities because I felt so weird being a person that was animated in these different ways. And so part of what, you know, this all reminds me of is just Jung here is getting more acquainted with rage. He's eating this liver and practicing as you're exploring that. And Last thing I'll say just politically here, I saw an extraordinary clip, if people want to look this up, of a Black Lives Matter, a trans black woman speaking as one of the leaders of Black Lives Matter to the value of property destruction and the fact that by destroying property, some protesters have been able to draw white America's attention to the amount of pain and suffering actually that has been unfolding, but it took destruction in order for that waking up to unfold. And I found the speech extraordinarily moving and really enlightening about the importance of rage in times and the fear that many people in America have of, of that emotion. Thanks. I think about don't make dad mad. Yeah, just how we're all taught not to make noise yeah. and not to be bad, but how complicit that makes us when rage makes us uncomfortable, when it's really warranted rage. Steve, you're, you're ready, hi. Hi, Carol. I was very excited to hear you name check uh, James Tiptree Jr., who oh. gets forgotten a lot as yeah. one of the major female science fiction writers. But it just interestingly tied into oh, here, here I had happened to have her books at hand here, so a couple of the titles. Oh, yeah. But I, she's such a remarkable story in this way because her name, real name was Alice B. Sheldon. Um, she worked for the CIA for a long time, yeah. and then when she started writing science fiction, there was a whole debate about, oh, well, is, is this a woman or is this a man writing under this name, James Tiptree? Because there are people saying like, oh, a, a woman wouldn't be able to write male characters as well. And then, and then other people are saying like, oh, well, uh, you know, a female writer or a male writer couldn't write female characters as well. And there's also these interesting stories that she writes that are very directly dealing with, um, you know, kind of clearly feminist issues. There's, there's one story called Houston, Houston, Do You Read?, where yeah. the whole question is these astronauts are trapped in space and they're not being allowed to, to return to this planet that is, that is controlled by women because they're, they're seen as a threat. But I find it very, she had a very interesting life and kind of a tragic death, but there's this interesting thing that she was working for the CIA, she was kind of like working for the patriarchy, and then she's, she's writing these stories where she seems to be 
processing this in different ways in, in a lot of them. Anyway, that's it. Thanks for bringing her Thank up. You. Thank you. No, she has a very interesting horoscope. You can access her horoscope online if you're interested in looking at her astrologically. Thank you so much. No, thank you. Carol, we might need to do a salon on female science fiction writers because I've not known of... Yeah, you ready? Okay, we're going <laughs> to... We have so much programming, everyone, just so you all know. If, if, you're, uh, if you're afraid of running out of Salome programming, do not worry. There is a lot coming at you. Okay, thank you, Steve. I love it. I'm so interested in this new author that I'm learning about. Um, hi, Helene. Thank you so much. And from Italy. You're in Italy, right? I'm in Italy, and I'm actually asking a question. I would love to hear maybe Pamela and your vision on talking about Portland and the Aquarius. And so Italy for me is often the heart of Europe, the heart of Tuscany, especially where I used to live, is, is really the heart of Italy. And there's a lot of bitter eating going on in Italy. Mm-hmm. They love the bitterness. So a lot of bitter salad, bitter... Uh, and say I don't eat certain things because of my liver or because of my kidneys or because Mm -hmm. of certain elements in their body. They know where these parts of their bodies are, which is very, I'm Danish. So it's not, you never hear anybody saying about that. They will talk about gluten maybe, but they will (laughs) not know where their kidney is or where their, but it's common. It's like they've grown up with it. So I was wondering in this time when you're talking about the American situation, if there's something, how different that, I mean, it's not maybe a question to be answered right now, but how different that would be for what's going on in Europe and in in something in a a country where, where, where this has been spoken in a different way. And one of the other things I wanted just to, my son once said to me, have you ever noticed that in courage, the word rage is present? So, and I love that. I kind of love that, that it's about being courageous, but it's also that the rage has to have its space, yeah. like the, the heart and the rage. It's also, <laughs> so, yeah. it's also co-rage. I mean, just as yeah. you say that, that quality yeah. of being rage mutuality, sort of an exactly, empathetic yeah. rage, you know. Because it's always about, oh, it's, the, it's acting from the heart. You know, in Italian, it's agire con il cuore. And also it's, it's acting with your heart, but it's also this yeah. thing about accepting that that rage is also part of it, for, for me anyway. So I just, because I've had such a difficult time with rage. So um, I'm kind of happy that there's this approach to it. So that was just my comment. So thank you. I'm going to continue exploring. I mean, I don't have the Chinese medical background. Pamela, do you maybe want to speak to Helene? Yeah, one, one thing that comes up for Portland is if Portland is an Aries city and Oregon is an Aries. Or Oregon's an Aquarian city. Okay, Aquarian. Well, mm-hmm. I was thinking about liver and in the Chinese medicine system, the liver in the body is considered the general of the body. And the general would be directing things and, you know, moving troops around and being responsible for the overall strategy. And so here we are in, in Portland um, where all of this is erupting and groups, you know, thousands of people are protesting. And so that's just kind of interesting. Thank you, Pamela. Carol said something very, very similar before we started the salon today. And I asked her, what would it be if we didn't use a military uh, metaphor for this. So I think (laughs) I kind of, I asked her not to use it, but when you're using it now, I feel the deep relationship. 
Um, right. well, I prefer a feminine uh, response also instead of this military metaphor. Well, yeah. it's it's not just if you you know if you think about an old culture that is creating wholeness, the idea that all the parts work together to metabolize experience on a regular basis, and that there are healthy expressions of it and there are unhealthy expressions of it. I think about reading number seven in the I Ching, which is called the Army, but it really is about collective preparedness for difficulty. You know, the Yi Jing compares the people to the groundwater of the country. Mm -hmm. You know, that, 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 that there needs to be a place where things are flowing and moving and on tap and available. And so I think of the liver that, that way. If you think about it from a military point of view, the general and the drill sergeant, the, gall, the liver and the gallbladder, it's one way to think about it. But the other thing that we clearly see happening here is a self-organizing principle that is at work in all of this that's going on, that there is a diffusion and that it's actually reading number eight in the I Ching B, which is that things, when we talked about this in the lowly, that things flow to the lowest place and that how things organize themselves is through affinity and rec recognition of complementarity. And so there's something like that is, I think, going on right now. It's very Aquarian. And Satya and I are talking about doing a webinar on the age of Aquarius from a, a, both a Jungian perspective and an astrological perspective. But what you're describing, Pamela, that, that organizing principle of how things are going to come together and move, not in a lockstep rigid way, but in an animated, dynamic, healthy related way is that this, we're in a huge shift, I think, about that. And, and it's happening in, in downtown. Okay, Liz, you're, we're going to go out with your comment or question here. Hi. I, hi. I just have a really quick book recommendation for a feminist science fiction text, and that's The Power by Naomi Alderman from just a couple years ago. So okay. you, oh, right with the, yeah. With the teenage girls that find they have an electric pulse yeah. and then the power gets subverted and then the writing under a different name. It's just really interesting. Brilliant. Right? Thanks just for that. that out there. I think it is a salon we're going to have to do at some point here coming up. <laughs> so thank you. So all, thanks so much for being here again and kind of holding space with us in these times. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. For more, please visit salameinstitute.com. And please review, rate, and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Many thanks to our incredible podcast team. To Anne Carroll for German translation and soulful insights. To our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this rough audio into a podcast. To Kelly Swenson for your dedicated work behind the scenes. To Haley Hendricks for the incredible podcast music. And to Ray Davis for our beautiful art. You're all brilliant and talented, and we're very grateful. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome Podcast.